Some of you may know, I have a younger brother. His name is Jason. Uh, and if you've had the pleasure of meeting my, my brother, he's my buddy. He's, he's, he's one of my best friends, truly. Uh, but when, uh, actually, this is pretty cool. He's also a preacher, which neither one of us would have ever dreamed that we would both be preachers. Uh, and he will be in town next month, and he's going to be preaching here. So I look forward to you guys to get to hear him speak some. Um, but uh, we're good friends now, but when we were younger, you might have thought that we didn't like each other. In fact, what you might have thought is that we were training to be professional, like, cage fighters. Um, because we were constantly trying to kill each other. That was our goal in life. I mean, and whether it was, like, yelling at each other, rolling on the ground, throwing punches, throwing anything else we could get our hands on. Like, I remember I threw this pair of, like metal shears at him like scissors yeah like a tomahawk like i'm in like i'm in the patriot right you remember that movie mel gibson that thing stuck in the headboard behind him he's sitting on a bed he looked at it like a cartoon character just kind of vibrating there next to him i re- i immediately regretted that decision i'm glad it didn't hit uh, i mean we shot each other with bb guns like it was good times right we were kids and it was oh those were the days um, <laughs> i admit most of the argument and fighting and punching was my fault i'm the older brother and i was just kind of uh, I was mean. I was mean. I had an attitude problem. I'll admit it. I've grown uh, beyond the point of trying to say it was his fault. Um, but I wonder if uh, you had a sibling growing up, if you ever had some sibling fights. Did you? If you if you had a brother or a sister, did you ever have one of those good sibling rivalries going on? Uh, maybe it was just because, like, they were mama's favorite and everybody knew it, you know, and it's like you're sick of them. Or maybe, like, you've grown up now. You're adults now. And there's some serious stuff going on. Like there was some dispute over like a will or some property. Or maybe you feel like they've been the black sheep of the family and burned some bridges. Or maybe you've been the black sheep of the family. You've burned some bridges. And so there's conflict there. Sibling rivalry is as old as siblings. Uh, Read the book. The very first two were kind of going at it a little bit. Uh, And so today we're diving into a book of the Bible that has its roots in what might be one of the greatest sibling rivalries of all time. Like the longest lasting uh, it's the book of Obadiah. I was talking to someone this week who who, said, who laughed and said, that's not a book of the Bible. And I'm like, it is. And they were like, they looked, they were like, it is. Obadiah. Obadiah. So we're in the, grab your Bible if you would. You're going to want to go ahead and get there. Obadiah. Uh, if you don't know where to find it, you're not alone. Okay. Use the index at the front. It's a very short book. I want to tell you that if you don't have a Bible to use, we have free ones back here at the door on the shelf. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, you can use it during the service today, or you can keep it if you need a Bible to hang on to. Uh, flip over there. We're going to read uh, starting at verse one, chapter one. But, but according to BibleGateway.com, check this out. Obadiah is the least read book in the Bible. The least read book. And maybe it's because it's the shortest book in the Bible. It's only one chapter of only 21 verses. And maybe another reason that it's the least read book in the Bible is unlike all the other books or most of the other books in the Bible that are directly written to either uh, the Israelites or Christians, this book is not written to either one of those groups. written to a whole group of people that we're going to, a different group that we're going to talk about in just a second. But today, we're going to do something that few have dared to do. Uh, we are going to read the book of Obadiah. We're going to do it. The whole thing. The whole thing. I think we can handle 21 verses. We're going to read the entire book. And then you can all be like, I read the book of Obadiah one time. And I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I'm glad we're doing this series that we're in right now because there's probably no reason I would have ever preached the book of Obadiah other than right now. And I also, when I went to preach this book, like study it, I, I didn't know what was in there. I know I have, I've read like a Bible in the year plan before. I'm like, what is Obadiah even about? So my goal today is literally that we get through the book of Obadiah. 
I hope you walk away with a lot more than that. But if you walk out patting yourself on the back because you got through the book of Obadiah, you're in a special crowd of people. Uh, we're in a teaching series. This is week four of it, where we're going through the minor prophets. And the minor prophets, uh, there are 12 of them in the end of our Old Testaments of our Bibles. And they're called minor because they're short, not because they're not important. Minor. And prophets because a prophet at least biblically speaking, is someone who has had some kind of an encounter with God and then they walked away with a message that they needed to share with some people. So they're minor because they're short and they're prophets because that's the message that they have. And this summer, our goal is to get through the first six minor prophets and then next summer we'll pick up and do uh, the last six. And it's been a really good journey. We've covered three so far. Today, we are in the book of Obadiah. Before we read it, I'm going to tell you, you've got to have some context. Otherwise, if you read it, I use a good chance you have no idea what's going on, but this context will really help set you up. First of all, Obadiah, we don't know much about the person Obadiah. I believe there are 12 Obadiahs in the Bible. None of them are this guy. Uh, he just kind of shows up with a message, but what we do know about him is when he lived, okay? And so it's a pivotal point in Jewish history. He lived during the devastating fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital city of the whole nation of Israel. And all throughout the other prophets, there's this, uh, there's this judgment that's being pronounced that because you guys have turned your back on your God, eventually your kingdom's going to fall. Well, Obadiah got to see that fall, unfortunately. So he was there for that and the aftermath. And this is a major pivotal point because uh, the Jewish nation, after the Babylonians are going to come in and take out Jerusalem, a lot of them are going to get carted off into exile and they're going to live an entire generation in a foreign land. And that's going to really reshape who the nation of Israel is by the time Jesus comes in a couple of generations later. Um, unlike the last three prophets that we studied, which were, well, let's see, Hosea and Joel and Amos, they were all written to the nation of Israel. Obadiah is written to a nation called Edom. And I don't know if you know much about Edom, uh, but the reason for this letter has a powerful backstory, okay? And so uh, let, let's just start with this. Let's talk about Edom. And I've got some video that's just going to play here and just let them go through. This is some modern-day video of what are the relics of Edom. And notice this fortified situation. These people had moved out into a place in the desert where there were these rock cliffs, and they were master carvers. And they would carve into these cliffs these fortresses. And not only that, they're tucked in behind these amazing narrow uh, ca uh, you know, canyons, kind of, that you'd have to walk through to get to them. So as a result, they were nearly impenetrable. I mean, many of these canyons, only you know, 20 people could walk through at a time. So if you were going to try to attack them, all they had to do is fight off 10 or 20 people at a time. And so no one would bother to attack them. So they're amazingly fortified. This area is an area known as Petra. Petra is a word that means rock. You also might recognize it from one of the Indiana Jones movies. It was actually the set of uh, the Holy Grail movie. I think right around there is the set. And so we'll just leave that image up there for a little while. So when we talk about the nation of Edom, I want you to picture this. This is where they lived. Um, and so... These pictures give us an idea, a glimpse of the nation of Edom because they were a, a rugged people, but they were also very skilled and they were very well protected. Not only were they very well protected, they were very wealthy. They were extremely rich. The nation of Edom was seated perfectly along the major trade route that went from kind of like the Far East, China, India area today into the area that's going to eventually lead to Egypt and the rest of Africa and the rest of Europe. And they're right on this trade route. And you better believe they capitalized on that. They, 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 they taxed the travelers. They traded goods with them. And they couldn't be an agricultural society because of where they lived. But they thrived because of trade. 
So they're really fortified and they're really rich. Nobody messed with them. Nobody could take their money because they were so fortified. And so that is the nation of Edom. Why in the world are we talking about the nation of Edom? This is not history class. Why are we doing that? Well, because Edom is brought up in the book of Obadiah because of where they came from. Uh, The story of the nation of Edom and where they came from goes all the way back to the very beginning pages of the Bible. And their great, 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 great granddaddy, their forefather, a guy named Esau. Does that ring a bell? If you don't know who Esau is, let me give you just a little bit of a glimpse of who he is. So near the very beginning of the Bible, God comes and he meets a guy named Abraham. Maybe rings more of a bell. Abraham eventually becomes the father of the Jewish people. Abraham is given a promise by God that the entire world is going to be blessed through his family line. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so uh, this begins, this process begins. Eventually out of that nation is going to come Jesus. So even Christians today, we're blessed because Jesus came into the world through the line of Abraham. But before any of that could happen, he had to have some children. So he has uh, his first child, Isaac. Isaac has twin sons named Jacob. And what's his twin brother's name, anybody? Esau. Jacob and Esau have an epic sibling rivalry. Call back to the first story, okay? And so it's too much to tell. Go read it in the book of Genesis. It's a fantastic story. It's crazy, full of intrigue and backstabbing, and it could be made into an amazing movie. But by the end of the day, what it turns out is it settles down, and Jacob becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Uh, He gets the promise that was given to Abraham. It gets passed on to him, and God really blesses him. Jacob has a moment where God uh, changes his name from Jacob to Israel. So all of Jacob's descendants become the Israelites. But Edom, Esau, also has a moment with God where his name is changed to Edom. So all of the Esauites become the Edomites. So unlike all the other nations that surrounded Israel, and you read about them all in the Bible, the Edomites were cousins. They were a brother nation. They have a common ancestry. And so that's the nation of Edom, and that's why we're talking about it. And all along the way, as Israel grows up and becomes prominent and takes their place among the nations in the world, Edom moves out into the desert. They build these amazing fortresses. They get super rich. And then the crossroads happens at the end of the kingdom of Israel's history. And what I mean by that is by the time the king fell, there's no more king after this period, and they become a different type of nation. But as that crossroads happens, something goes down in this rivalry between Edom and Israel that leads to the writing of the book of Obadiah. You with me? That's the background. Okay, let's read the entire book of Obadiah. Want to? I don't care. We're going to do it anyway. Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. This is the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And you who live in the clefts of the rocks, you picture in Petra, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and you make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So dig through all that poetic, prophetic language, okay? And you can go and you can analyze it later. But let me just give you the highlights. This is what's going down. Obadiah is speaking against the kingdom of Edom uh, from God. And he says, look, man, 
you guys all cocky sitting up on your mountains? You're all you're coming down. You think you're impenetrable? You think your wealth will save you? You think your relationship with other nations will save you? No. The Lord is going to bring you down. Why? What have they done? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. But keep on reading because it's continuing to call down judgment on Edom. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Notice the use of the word Esau here. He, you know, this is very ancient type writing. Like, they're the Edomites, but he's going to refer to them by the name of their ancestor Esau. Very common. Verse 7, we're going to keep reading. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. A lot of poetic language again. Remember, Edom is known for being this trade industry, okay? And so, you know, if God was going to call down judgment on an agricultural nation, he would say, there's going to be a famine. Or, you know, you're not going to have any crops. Or people are going to take away your workers in the fields. Like, that would, that would crush the economy, economy of that nation. So then this trade nation, he says, listen, thieves are going to break in and steal. There's going to be robbers. Your allies aren't going to back you up anymore. So it's, this, it's, it's equivalent uh, devastation. And God is saying, listen, because of something you've done, Edom, you're going to be punished. Esau will be ransacked, robbed plundered your allies return on you your friends deceive you your business partners will abandon you and so why what has edom done okay so we're going to get to verse 10 and this is where we figure out the problem the sibling rivalry or whatever you want to call it verse 10 it's because of the violence against your brother jacob you will be covered in shame you will be destroyed forever so notice He's going to call them Jacob, you know, call them by their ancestor's name, just like he called Edom Esau. What kind of violence, what kind of violence did Edom, you know, have against Jacob? Actually, it's pretty historic. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you might miss it because they have a lot of enemies, the Israelites. The nations all around them are constantly fighting. But Edom was right in there with them. Uh, there were several accounts where Edom refused to let Israel pass through their land. They're like, you can't, you can't pass through here, especially in those wandering years before they established themselves in what would be uh, the promised land. They did intentionally wage war against Israel. And so during the reigns of King David, King Saul also, and King Solomon, there were just moments where Edom is like attacking Israel, sometimes just unprovoked. There's this brief period where they form an alliance, and that's actually a pretty cool period. Uh, it's in 2 Kings chapter 3, if you want to go check it out, 2 Kings chapter 3. Uh, Edom comes alongside Israel, and they are allies as they fight against their common enemy, Moab. A little ancient history for you there, but check this out. Once that's over, guess what Edom does? They attack Judah. They invade Judah, and like they kind of turn their back on their alliance there again. And in the most recent years, like contemporary to Obadiah, they have revolted against two other Israelite kings that are going on at that time. So according to, there's a scholar that I read a lot for Old Testament stuff, uh, Dr. James E. Smith, no relation to the elder at our church, James Smith. Dr. James E. Smith, um, that middle initial was very helpful. Um, 
he has a commentary on the minor prophets, and he says this about this period. What, what did Edom do wrong? Okay, so if you want to look back at verse 10 while I read this, that language, uh, the violence against your brother Jacob, that phrase, that's covenantal language, says Dr. James E. Smith. But people, other people agree, and the, the idea is this. Uh, historically, the Edomites and the Israelites were supposed to be allies, I told you that Jacob and Esau had a bad sibling rivalry, but if you know their story, by the end of it, they actually became friends again. They restored their covenant with each other. They embraced each other. They said, I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. And let's ally with one another. But their ancestors didn't follow through on that covenant, particularly the Edomites. And so all this violence that they've done, it's like they're doing it against their ally. And even worse than a political ally, it's it's family. Blood relatives, they're cousins. And so that's what God is so upset about. And he tells Obadiah, and Obadiah comes along and says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob. And so he's going to go on and he's going to talk more about this violence, specifically about the violence that's most recently happened. Remember I told you, Obadiah lived during the time of the fall of Jerusalem. And the Edomites knew all about that. In fact, they stood by and watched while it happened. Verse 11, we're going to read several verses in a row now. On that day... You stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, Jacob's wealth, Israel's wealth. While the strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and you cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. So this is about when Babylon ransacks Jerusalem, Obadiah uh, verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah. In the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. How dare you come in? Oh, no, sorry. This is Jesus. This is God saying, how dare you come in and kick your brother while he's down, right? I mean, he's getting attacked by Babylon. And and we'll see in a second why that's even worse. In verse 13, keep going, though. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster, You should not wait at the crossroads to cut them down, to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So the attitude of Edom throughout the whole Babylonian attack, verse 11 said, you stood aloof. You know, that's like if you're standing aloof, you just you have no concern for what's going on over there. Eh, Whatever, whatever happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem. We're just going to stand here and watch. Verse 12, it says they were gloating over the state of Israel. In verse 13 and 14, it said they exploited the Israelites. Specifically, it says they seized their wealth, killed their fugitives, sold their survivors. This is brutal actions towards other people. Other people in their time of distress, in their time of trouble, other people that are supposed to be your allies, other people that are your family. And that is essentially what Obadiah is about. The book of Obadiah. This misstep in compassion and injustice and looking out for the well-being of other people. So, as a father myself, as a dad, I've got two kids. And I feel like I'm constantly helping my kids work through their own relationship with each other. <laughs> Believe it or not, my kids, uh, they fight every now and then. It's not, not bad. Uh, um, you know, just afraid they might kill each other. That's all. Um, and, you know, so, like, but it's funny how often I have to come alongside and, and help them work through it. And so there might be one moment where like there's a big blow up and one of them's like, I, I, well, I don't know why they're so upset. I just asked them to get out of my room. I asked them nicely. I'm like, 
I heard what you said. That wasn't nice at all. And then I come in and I'm like, okay, is all you did ask them to get out of your Because no, it's not all you did. It's not all you did. I, this morning, I saw you push them in the hallway and, and, and you said something rude. And then you went in and you got the last bit of cereal when they said, please, can I have it? And then like, you wouldn't let them play that game with you yesterday. And then like for a week, you've been like getting on their nerves about this one thing, right? And so I, I lay out the history of all the offenses. And if my kids are sane, which is occasional, they might see all of that and be like, oh yeah, I can see, I can see why they'd be upset. Most often they're just like, uh-uh, it was, it was their fault. So I'm just kidding. My kids never do that. Uh, <laughs> but the point is our attitudes and, and our actions towards people, they're cumulative. Do you realize this? They're cumulative. You don't get just one interaction with someone and then they wipe the slate clean. It's cumulative. It piles up and piles up. And the resulting damage of treating someone badly can have like exponentially devastating results. Especially when some of those uh, offenses are like you invaded their country, you fought against them in a war, you stood by and did nothing while another nation held you under siege and took you people off as slaves. Right? And so it's cumulative. And so Obadiah is saying, listen, this is the problem. So verse 15 is a turning point. And this is a point where I think we can start to lean in because I think he's going to start speaking to not only Obadiah, I mean, sorry, not only Edom, but future nature, nations. The United States of America as one example, but all other people groups. And so in verse 15, we see that. Let's just see where it goes. The Obadiah says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. I don't want to overemphasize that sentence because I, I despise it when people say things that the Bible isn't saying, okay? But it does say that, okay? It does say the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And that phrase, day of the Lord, is a very key word in all the prophets. Day of the Lord means someday of coming judgment or God interacting or intervening. Okay, so that's what it says. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, listen, okay, you're not senators, you're not a president or a vice president. You, many of you don't have, you could care less about politics. Or some of you care a little too much. But, that's just me. Um, but the point is, I want you to take the word nations, okay? And I want you to overlay it on your own heart. Because the things that are about to be said can be said to you as an individual. And me, okay? I'm not preaching to anybody but myself right now. As you have done, it will be done to you. And your deeds will return upon your own head. This is what he's saying to Edom. Is it possible that this could be true for us as well? Verse 16. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. So, so God is going to set a standard here, not only for Edom, but for all nations. That Listen, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned upon your head. So... Once again, we see these minor prophets, and they don't hold any punches. They don't pull any punches. They just will punch you right in the face with like what, what God is having them say to us. And I think we need to hear it. Um, then he's going to wrap up with what all the prophets have done. I've said it's a two-sided coin. There's, there's judgment or warning or caution on one side of the coin. But they always flip the coin, and they give us hope. Because God is not a God of destruction and violence. He's capable of it. But he's a God of grace and love. That's at the core of who he is. What he wants to do is to give us the opportunity to do right. The key word in all of the prophets has been repent, which means turn your heart back to God. 
And so at the end of the book of Obadiah, we're going to get this hope. It's a short book, so it's not as elaborate as some of the others have been. But as we wrap up, we see a glimmer of hope. Because to finish his message, Obadiah is going to share a message about the kingdom of God. And that's a phrase we use a lot here at our church. Because it's a phrase Jesus uses a lot. And, 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 and it's code word for like when God's people are doing his will on planet earth, the kingdom of God is happening. Uh, we've called it carrying pockets of heaven with you everywhere that you go. Okay, so that's the kingdom of God. And so verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Mount Zion is code word a lot of times for the nation of Israel. It was the name of the hill that Jerusalem was built on was Mount Zion. And so it can mean a lot of different things, but it's, it's, it's kind of a trigger word in the Old Testament for hope or for God's promise. Okay. So, but Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Now, verse 18. Jacob will be fire. I just picture that emoji that you send out when stuff is, I don't know. And Joseph, a flame. Uh, again, Joseph is one of the forefathers of the nation of Israel. So, he's just like, Israel's gonna, gonna be good. Esau, however, will be stubble. If you don't do good with imagery, this is not a compliment. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. And the fact remains that as Esau, as, as Israel reformed and was able to come out of exile, Edom as a nation ceases to exist. And the warning is like, listen, when you act this way towards people, when you deny them compassion and justice and you ignore them in their time of need, God is not going to put up with that forever. He's not. Verse 19 talks about it. A lot of words here, a lot of geography. Follow the thread. That's all you need. Okay, here's the words. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. And the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shephard will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion. We talked about Mount Zion, okay? Triggering the, the, the vision of hope and God's promise. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. They have now lost their position as the rulers of that area. And this last sentence is really all you need to hear. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Don't get lost in all that other verbiage. Feel free to study it. Nothing to be afraid of, but it's not the point today. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And that, that last part basically says eventually the nation of Israel, all of these people will be carted off to Babylon, but they're going to be brought back. The kingdom is going to be restored. And we see as you flip all the way to the New Testament of the Bible, that because of that restoration, God's plan is still in action. There's a remnant of the promise left behind. And eventually Jesus is going to rise out of the ashes of the mess that happened in Babylon. So, whoo, first of all, boom, you just read the book of Obadiah. So let's just clap that out. I mean, you're in an elite group now, guys, you're Bible scholars. But um, more importantly, what does that mean for us? I got a few thoughts uh, that in digging through this, I feel like are really important. Um, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, they, they took bitterness, bitterness towards their cousin nation, the Israelites. And I think they made it their identity. And that bitterness consumed them. Bitterness will consume you. It will destroy you. 
This isn't a sermon on forgiveness, but there you go. And if you hold on to it, it will win. The struggle will win. The, the feud will win. You will not win. You will not win. You can't win with bitterness on your heart. Even when you do win, it feels like a loss. That's a little lesson from Edom, maybe. Um, because we are people who love to direct our bitterness at people. Aren't we? Or are we? Like, how do you talk about people who vote differently than you do? Do you see them as intelligent? Or do you judge every bit of their academic skill and their judgment? Just a question. We aim our bitterness at people. We disregard them as human beings. What is your attitude when culture goes in a direction that you are not cool with? We aim it at the people. Our bitterness will consume us and it will destroy the way that we can love people who, remember last week, everyone was created in the image of God and we said that justice, one part of justice is to help give people their God-given dignity, regardless of what they've done or what they believe or what they think. We, we owe, God wants us to give people justice, their God-given dignity. And if you want the rest of that, go listen to last week's sermon. There's so much in there. Sometimes we forget that people are just people. And just like you and me, we're not perfect. And it's up to us to make a difference. So we read the whole book of Obadiah. A lot of it maybe was like <laughs> over our heads and like, I want to read from the book of Romans right now. Actually a pretty lengthy section, but I believe in you. Okay, you can do this. I can tell you're, you're, you're dialed in. We're going to read from Romans chapter 12 if you want to turn there. Actually, it could be very helpful if you want to follow along. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 21. And I'm going to give very little commentary. I'm going to let the Apostle Paul teach us. Because I think this section could be actually the remedy. It could be the actual antithesis of what the Edomites did and what Obadiah was upset about as we read this. All right, so read along on the screen. Follow along in your Bibles or on your phone. Let's see what it says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, and be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself and never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Mm. Let that one sink in. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. And share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Quick time out. That first paragraph is pretty easy because basically it's like, love the people that you like. Okay? Verse 14 is going to just stomp on our feet a little bit. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. In fact, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, 
but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil. Sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how we are to be set apart. It should not cause... As we look as we look into the world and see people acting this way, it causes us to sit up and take notice. Like They're not acting the way of man. They're acting the way of God. Jesus says it this way. This is in John 13, 35. He says, By this everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. The lesson of the Edomites is hard because, man, in the middle of all the pillaging and plundering, they went down to the city. In fact, there was a, there's a lot of belief that they went down there. They actually went down maybe around the time of the siege. You know, hey, what you guys doing, Babylon? Oh, we're taking over Jerusalem? Cool. Next. And they went in and they looted and it said they gambled for Jerusalem, you know, cast lots for Jerusalem. Like, it's so easy for us to see people in time of distress and just stand around and just join the crowd looking on. But if there's anything I've learned in the last four weeks studying the Minor Prophets, is what God wants us to do is to walk into it with the heart of God. And that, my friends, is terrifying. And it's uncomfortable. It's not popular. But isn't that what Jesus did for us? The message of Jesus is that God so loved the world that he came. As a form of a human named Jesus, and he gave his life so that if we would have faith in that, believe in that, and follow him as our master, we enter into the kingdom of God. We join into that brotherhood. We get to invite other people in on that. You know, my brother and I, we would go, uh, we would go tooth and claw, uh, and we would throw down. And um, there was a moment, um, I'm a couple years older than my brother, I went off to college. And then he actually followed. We went to the same college. And I remember this moment where uh, there were a couple of moments similar to this where we kind of started to get closer. But there was this moment where we were sitting in a dorm room together. Everyone else had left. And we were kind of sitting across from the table. We were just laughing and cutting up because the guys had just left. And then it got quiet. And I don't remember which one of us said it. But we looked up at each other. And one of us said, huh, you're my brother. Which is a weird thing to say. Like, duh. But, like, in the midst of cutting up with all my friends, we realized we were having fun together. And we had the same goals and we were on the same page and it was unique this like there's there's nobody that I've spent as much time with and have known as long as my my brother and that started for us a, a shift in how we acted towards each other and we've become allies and friends and there's nothing that we can't do together this isn't about family relationships and like blood bonds but there can be that moment with so many of us, where we can just look up at someone that we might have been an enemy to, or that we might have been at odds with. And I don't know if their heart will change, but I love the Apostle Paul's warning or words in Romans 12, verse 18, that we just read. That if it's